What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining me today is former NFL athlete and professional development speaker and coach, Rennie Curran. Rennie, welcome to the show. Hey, Rennie. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Just to give you listeners a little bit of a background, Rennie Curran is a former professional athlete, speaker, author, and personal development coach with a passion for improving leadership, career performance, and personal branding. Rennie's unique combination of leadership experiences with the NFL, the John Gordon companies, and his transition into becoming a successful entrepreneur translates to powerful and practical coaching, training, and speaking services for his clients. For several years, Rennie has worked with schools, universities, associations, companies, and sports teams in the capacity of keynote speaker, coach, strategic partner, and brand ambassador. Clients include Coca-Cola, Chick-fil-A, the City Council of Bainbridge, the University of Georgia, AXA Advisors, Communities and Schools, and more. Some highlights from Rennie's experiences, three-time All-American athlete, team MVP, he was the captain of the University of Georgia football team from 2007 to 2009. Rennie is the CEO of Game Changer Coaching, whose mission is to help business professionals and elite athletes reach their fullest potential through personal development workshops and one-on-one coaching in order to improve leadership and career performance. Rennie is also the author of Free Agent, Intangible Assets for Overcoming Adversity in Times of Transition from April 2013, and What Does It Take to Be a Star from August 2017, which he authored with his beautiful 10-year-old daughter, Eliana Curran. Uh, both of his motivational self-help books discuss personal development topics such as the importance of leadership, character, and resilience. His books have been used as educational resources in several schools across the Southeast. Randy and I connected when I was at the Super Bowl, the most recent one, down in Atlanta where he's based. I'm so excited for this interview. Randy, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. Thank you. It's an honor. And I appreciate the uh, intro, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. So... Ready? tell me a little bit about your upbringing and um, how early involved did you get with playing football and was there anything else notable from your upbringing that got you interested in either being an athlete or coaching? Yeah, man, um, I, I have a very unique uh, upbringing. That's, that's one that I feel like the greatest assets um, when it comes to my life. And it, start, it all started with my parents. You know, they're both Liberian immigrants who came to this country. Uh, very humble, very hardworking people. My mother came to Atlanta first she uh, was very, very smart and chose between uh, Duke and Emory uh, to come here to get her master's in nursing. So that's how we ended up uh, here. And she actually left at the age of 30, my father and my older sister in Liberia. And um, so just came with a lot of just, like I said, hard work and just uh, um, humility and just faith. And <clears throat> after she was finished, my father came and uh, along with my older sister, he bought into a shoe repair franchise. So he uh, worked 12 hours a day fixing shoes, man. Just that that immigrant, you know, just story of just coming to a new place and trying to make a better life for their family. And, and so I was born 
in 88. And uh, at that time, Civil War uh, broke out in their home country of Liberia. So I was the, the one and only um, person in my family who never got a chance to go back. And, and so that became a big part of my life, just seeing the sacrifices that they made, um, building themselves, but also helping to build uh, our extended family and get them over here to this country. And when it came to um, football, you know, I actually, most people don't know this, but I started out as a musician first. So I grew up playing the piano, playing the drums in church and uh, playing in the orchestra from middle school to high school. But one thing about me was I was always rough. Like, and I just had this, this physical ability that um, was a God given gift, man. Like I remember at eight years old, having six, eight years old, having muscles, like <laughs> uh, no lie. And it, it was just one of those things. Like when I, first time I held a football in my hand, it was like a light bulb clicked on. It was kind of like, I always compared it to like Spider-Man, like when he finally has his spidey senses kick in and he's like <laughs> doing all these ridiculous things. That's how kind of how it was for me. And um, when we moved to Gwinnett County, which was about 20 minutes from uh, Atlanta, <clears throat> where I was born, that's when everything really started. I found my, my little league coach who became like a second father to me and joined a team, an organized team. And they became like my family, like my brothers. Um, I had two older sisters, so I was the only boy. And it was, it was tough growing up, getting bossed around a lot. But when I found them, it was like my outlet. It was an escape. So that's where things kind of started for me. And, and um, going to my, my Little League coach took me to my first university, Georgia game, at 10 years old. And that's when, like, I, I really got serious about it. I was really just sold. It started just that dream. Wow. So it sounds like you had a really powerful mentor with your coach. Yeah. Um, sounds like you had a lot of God-given talent. But also – Tell us about the work that you put in, because mm. there are a lot of people out there who have that and do not make it to the pro level. So right, right, right. What, what else is part of your story that enabled you um, as you were growing up and, and staying involved with football to, to get to the next level? Yeah, I mean, it, it was ridiculous work ethic. I, I took that same uh, mentality that my parents had, that same work, uh, mentality of just work ethic, that same mentality of, of uh, fighting and building something not just for yourself, but for your family and those around you. And um, the humility as well, man, to just listen and be coachable and, and not you know, act like you had, you know, had it all, had all the answers. Um, and I infused that into my game, man. So when it came to just the work, man, the, the work was endless. You know, um, I'm talking from the time I was 14, 15 years old, being in the weight room, man, killing myself and, and, um, once again, fortunate enough to have a Little League coach who believed in me and others in the community who believed in me, even when my parents, you know, because my parents knew nothing at all about football. So uh, they were working just trying to pay the bills. And so I had a lot of people that stepped in, um, starting, you know, like I said, with my coach, but he actually paid for me to go to a facility and be trained by a guy who trained NFL athletes. And, and the guy's name was Chip Smith. And he was another guy who became like a mentor of mine along with a lot of other trainers, but he was kind of that main one that exposed me to speed and conditioning and, and um, resistance training and, and so many things that uh, helped to set me apart in my position. And from there, it was just about me utilizing all the resources around me, all the relationships around me um, between my football program, uh, Brookwood, which was a powerhouse football program, and then having the extra training from guys like him. And it, it was just always about how could I take what, what God gave me and maximize it and take it to the next level. Cause I was considered undersized. I wasn't the typical size for my position. I, I played running back 
growing up, but when I got to high school, I got switched to linebacker and was literally about to quit. But um, instead of quitting, I used that adversity as fuel. Um, and every time I heard I was too short, I just kept going even harder. And literally by the time I left high school, I left benching 425, squatting 515, cleaning 320, like the, and left the all-time leading tackler uh, in Gwinnett County. And I don't say that to brag at all. I just say that to really just demonstrate the – or just uh, discuss the work ethic, man, that I, that I put in. Just lots of – lots and lots and lots of hours of hard work and getting up early and being the first in line and just all those things. Mm, that's powerful, man. And, you know, I, I want to talk about that hunger and that discipline in a minute. But the first yeah. thing is I want to talk about you said that you were coachable. And I mm -hmm. think that if you look at guys like Tom Brady, people at the highest levels, right. they have no egos. If they're doing something wrong, they want to right. know it so they can get better. Yep. And they don't take it personally. And I'm curious in your journey and also as you coach people now, do you have mm -hmm. any advice? Because in, in our society today, there are a lot of people who are either too sensitive, they don't want right. to hear what they're doing wrong because it can hurt them, or mm -hmm. people, you see this a lot with men, you see guys are very stubborn and like, nah, I'm doing it right. Right. You know, stay off me. So how do you um, encourage people to be more coachable? What skills did you have that enabled you to really listen? And how can the listeners of this show be more open, whether it's a boss that they don't like or even a romantic partner who's on them. But it's like, no, I got to be coachable. I got to listen up more. Right. I mean, it, it really starts with, number one, I believe self-awareness, man. Like, you got to be able to look yourself in the mirror, which is a lot, of, a lot of times the problem people have is just being honest with themselves. A lot of people use different, whether it's the job or title or the money in the bank account to um, give them a false sense of validation to where they feel like they're good and they don't need anybody. And they don't need to listen to advice, but once you have self-awareness and you're able to look yourself in the mirror, be honest with yourself, uh, honest about your weaknesses, honest about, you know, hey, I'm not here, but, you know, I, I, I know I can do better, having a growth mindset. Uh, and then along with self-awareness, having humility, like that's, that's something my parents always taught me was humility and respect. Like, I don't care who you come across, like the janitor, whoever it is, like you can learn something from that person. And just yeah. uh, seeing everybody from that standpoint that they are of value um, is, is where it starts. Self, and that's one thing, like, self-awareness uh, was implanted in me. Uh, once again, for my Little League coach, one thing he would do if we had a bad day is he would say, I want you to go home and I want you to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, like, who are you? Like, what do you want out of life? You know, what do you want out of this season? And I feel like so many people have a hard time doing that. And, you know, when it comes to the people that uh, – approach me about coaching or anything like that a lot of times they say they they want to be coached they say they want to improve but number one they're not really honest about <laughs> where they want to go or even vulnerable enough to admit that hey i have weaknesses yeah. and then two a lot of people are like comfortable you know that it's like they can um operate in chaos like <laughs> comfortably in chaos um and and it's like a lot of times they don't really want to change you know when it gets down to it um, they're not willing to make the sacrifice, whether it's monetarily or whether it's time-wise, to make that change. And so I really believe it starts with self-awareness and humility when it comes to, to just coaching and improving yourself mm -hmm. and listening and being coachable. Yeah, yeah. And, and so fantastic that you had the, those parents and, and this coach. It sounds like he was really impactful on you. Now, um, let's go over to, like, hunger. 
and the work mm-hmm. because I remember when um, the Miami Heat lost to the Dallas Mavericks in the playoffs when they had he'd have LeBron and Wade and everyone and um, Dirk Nowitzki and those guys just like muscled it out and you could just yeah. tell and my friend turned to me he was actually the captain of the tennis team at Cornell where I went to college and he said mm-hmm. man hard work can beat talent right and I'm curious what you saw when you played in the NFL and you were the captain at University of Georgia football, like mm-hmm. I'm sure there were guys that were just freaks, right. but I'm sure there were also guys who were solid athletes who just worked their tail off to get there. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you could, do you have any examples of people like that, you know, that oh, you've yeah. seen and like how that could inspire listeners to say, okay, maybe I don't have the highest IQ, but I can right. still go out there and do well in business, for example. Right, right, right. So I, I definitely like anytime I go out and speak, this is this is one of the analogies I use or like metaphors I use that um, comes directly from the field. But everybody knows somebody in these three categories. Um, everybody's been on a team where you have somebody who has the bench warmer mentality, like somebody who's just happy to be out there, who's happy to wear the jersey. They're not, you know, trying to go. They're not trying to do any work whatsoever. They're just there. You know, I mean, they just exist. And then you have next the role players. Like those who, you know, they, they, they're good at what they do. They have talent and they do their job and they go, you know, they don't go over and above anything. Like they're just going to do it. And if it causes any type of pain or any type of hard work, like, they're like oh, I'm not doing that. That's not my job type of thing. And then lastly, you have your game changers. Like you have your people who just, they operate at a certain code that's above any expectation, like, anything that's going on around them, they have that ability to just zone in and get the job done. Like no matter what it takes, they're going to put their body online. They're going to sacrifice. Like that's just who they are. And it doesn't matter if they're being acknowledged or not, if they're getting a reward or not, like they just have this drive. And and so um, whether it's in sports and business, you just have those certain individuals, man. I, I believe that a game changer. And it's always interesting to see um, not only how they move, but just learn about their stories and their background. Cause Nine times out of ten, those game changers, like, they're fighting for something that's way bigger. Like, they have a situation going on at home um, where it's, like, they know, like, they have no choice. Like, they have a child or they have, you know, their their brother or something might have passed away. Like, they, something something internal that's driving them that's just different, you know. And that and when you really get to, to the um, – to understand the story of those types of individuals, you just know, like, it, it just does not matter what comes their way. They're going to be resilient. They're going to be the types that – you know, achieve the, the highest and sustain it. You know, it's one thing to get there, to be at the highest level, another, a whole nother deal to to sustain it. So that was one of the things, you know, when I look at my career um, that, that really helped set me apart and helped me not only have that drive, but maintain it. Even after my name was mentioned in the newspaper and I got the accolades and I got the money and the different things. And I was able to now transfer that from sports into the business world. So I think when I think about hunger, those are some of the things that I think about. Mm. <clears throat> That's great. Um, let's go back to your story. So we talked about when you were younger and yeah. then going to like a feeder high school and going to Georgia games growing up. But mm-hmm. tell us more about being a high school football player. And I'm also really curious, like when did you know you're like, mm. okay, like George, like college, elite college football is an option for me. And right. then also like, when did you know that like, pro football is an option? Mm, yeah, that's a great question, man. I mean, I knew, honestly, I knew at 10 years old, the first time I walked in that stadium, I made my mind up. Like, that's where I was going. Wow. And 
I was just that convinced. I believed that much. Like I visualized everything before it ever happened. And from there, it was just about putting the work in. And, you know, as time went on and as I um, heard about the statistics and heard about the chances that I had, uh, I tell everybody, it's like you can look at those numbers and you can look at the chances and you can do two things. You can either buy into that belief that is never going to happen or you can use that as fuel and say, man, I'm not going to be defined by statistics and I'm not going to be defined by what anybody else says. And so um, that, that was what I did, man. I had even some of my own coaches who were like, you know, when I was going through the recruiting process, like, Randy, don't be surprised that no big schools come after you. You know you're short. Like, you know you're undersized. Like, I heard every single short joke. I heard every single line from every expert why <laughs> I didn't meet the size requirements to play in the SEC. And every time I heard it, it just got me even more fired up. So I just learned how to use those uh, negative just um, words that were coming at me and, and mindset and even, even my own self-doubts. I use it all as fuel. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I got in the weight room, I, I visualized myself. I saw myself at UGA. Every time I hit a rep, I was making a play. I was making a tackle in my, in my mind. And all those little efforts just added up, man. All, all those times I woke up at 5, 30, 6 o'clock, got in the film room and studied, you know, all the times that I would go to the workouts after school, before school, like everything just added up to me being um, at, at University of Georgia, and not just on the field with what I did on the field, but off the field, how I treated people, my character. That's what a lot of people forget. If, you, if you're amazing at what you do, but nobody has anything good to say about you, a lot of times you're going to short circuit your own success. Like You're not going to get to where you want to be. And even if you do, it's going to be short-lived. So that was a big part of, of my success as well. Is when Coach Rick, who was coaching at University of Georgia, came to my high school and he talked to the lunch ladies, he talked to the janitors, he talked to the principal. All of them had good things to say about Rennie Curran. And um, that's one, one thing I really stress to people is protecting your brand. Uh, and so things like that is what helped me not only get to University of Georgia, but also get to the NFL. Because as you know, there's, there's a million amazing linebackers, there's a million athletes, man. There's you know thousands who come out every year out of college and only 300 get drafted. I was a 97 pick. You know, yeah. under still undersized. It ain't like I grew four inches. <laughs> I was still like, I maybe grew like an inch or something. But you talking about, you know, going against guys like Tim Tebow and and Julio Jones and you know playing with AJ Green and Matthew Stafford. Like uh, most of these guys were all first rounders, and um, to be mentioned in the same category as them, you know, not coming from money, coming from parents who didn't even know anything about football. You not know, even was, born in this country. Yeah, and I yeah. You know, so it was just a lot of just efforts just added up over time. Like I said, humility, drive, faith, man, and just people in my corner who really, really supported me as well. So, yeah. I love that. So what was the moment when you found out from Georgia that you were coming (laughs) to play football for them? Man, so um, (laughs) I had – so Georgia was actually the last school to come in and offer me, man, so – uh, after my junior year, like I, I had led the, uh, I believe the state in tackles, like 198 tackles. Um, so it was just killing myself. And Boston College came in, Georgia Tech, the rival school that came in with the offer. Boston, uh, did I already say Boston? Yeah, Mississippi State came in with the offer. And, you know, things were moving, but Georgia still hadn't offered me. And, um, I had been up there a couple times. Well, not a couple of times. I went up there a little. <laughs> <laughs> I went up there, but I used to go up there so much. Like, 
and it was funny because I would, I would put on some Timberland boots to like give me some extra inches and I'll <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I'll put on like hoodies and just try to go up there and look big and get the coach's attention because I knew a couple guys up there who were from Gwinnett and who had the same coaches that I did so I was just that like that little annoying brother that was always around yeah and um, finally like when Auburn came in because Auburn had like linebackers like Trey Blackman who were closer to my size and who were doing really well and so I, I got you know, pissed off, and I was just like, look, if Georgia doesn't offer me, I'm just going to go to Auburn and Tech and give them hell, like, every year. And uh, I got my Little League coach to call uh, the guy who was recruiting me from Georgia, who I've been in contact with, and he was like, hey, if you guys don't offer Rennie, he's just going to go to Auburn. And then uh, Bobo, <coughs> Coach Bobo was his name, he was just like, give us some time. You know, we're going to make a decision uh, pretty soon here. And so maybe, like, a week later, they off uh, they invited me up to their spring practice. And um, from there, met with Coach Rick, and it was it was uh, April, it was like April first, uh, two thousand six, and met with him, and yeah, that was it. He offered me on the spot, and then I waited like a week, and then um, committed. So best decision of my life, man. Yeah, that's awesome. So so you, they invited you up there to like come work out and like run some drills while they would watch. No, they just um, they just really offered. Um, invited me just to watch practice and whatnot but oh, by okay. then like I knew I knew like everybody is <laughs> they're like hey you guys know ready like yeah we know ready like yeah but you didn't yeah. expect that they were going to offer you the spot for that trip did you or were you I, kind of- I kind of suspected it but but not really you know the, the momentum yeah. I've been building I've been talking to them a little bit more um but yeah you just never know when you're in that position <laughs> like the recruiting process it's a lot like a beauty contest you know it's like they and then you just don't know who they're talking to because they could tell you, oh, yeah, we, you're on our radar or whatever, but they're talking to three other linebackers in California and Florida. So you really just don't don't know whatsoever, man. Mm. Yeah. Well, good for you. I think part of it was, like, pushing and, you know, not in, an un, in a bad way, but just, like, making it known that you're there, going on, right. showing up a lot. That's really powerful. Yeah. And yeah. Um, and then, obviously, you turn into the to an NFL draft and the team captain. So – um, what do you think, like, you know, just in my example, I went to Cornell Law School and mm-hmm. there was a guy who was from Colorado. His name is mm-hmm. Andy Orr. And he, uh, he got waitlisted at Cornell Law. And so he was just, which is, you know, a top Ivy League law school, one of the best. Right. And then, so he got waitlisted. So he put down his deposit. He was all paid up to go to like, I think University of Colorado Law School, which is a good school, but definitely yeah. a different level. Mm-hmm. The day before class starts at Cornell there's like four different buckets of like wait list entries there's like you know early the summer a couple of weeks before and then there's always like one or two people right at the end who just like don't show up for class and then Cornell calls those that mm. last person and they're like hey you're gonna lose your apartment deposit at Colorado your probably tuition deposit but if you mm. want the seat you can come dang and he flew in the day before he got an apartment he did it he was the editor-in-chief of Law Review. That's like the equivalent of captain, you know, of the whole school. And wow. got a massive law job in New York City and was just like a great guy, huge for the community. And mm-hmm. so with both him and, and with you, like, why do you think there's like some of the most talented, best performers aren't always shoes in on these things? Man, that's a, that's a great question, man. Um, who It's like, I look at the fact that there's things in life that, are so valuable that can't be measured, you know, like, and what I mean by that is like your will, your heart, your faith, 
uh, your determination, like all those things can't be measured. And sometimes we place way more value on the things that can be measured. You know, like in my instance, it was my height. Like I can't, I don't have any control over that. Like <laughs> the one thing. And I told him a million times, like, look, if I could take a pill and make myself two inches taller, I would have been found that pill. I would have been ate whatever, you know, veggie or whatever I could eat. If it was spinach like Popeye, I would have been ate it. <laughs> but I just can't. You know, my parents, like my dad's like 5'8", my dad. My dad's not even five eight; he's like five seven, and my mom's like five three, five four. So I was lucky to be the the height that I was. But it's like sometimes when they don't, you know, you don't meet um, the 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 pass the eye test is what we call it. Then people just kind of try to devalue you and dis discredit uh, your worth. And in our cases, as I'm sure uh, it was true for for your friend, um, that just gives you that drive you know because you understand that in order to achieve the same level uh of recognition or get passed through the same doors that those people who do meet those measurables um get to have like you have to literally maximize every single thing that you have and in the course of maximizing every single uh gift that you have or resource that you have available to you you just develop this mentality where you become a beast and that's that's what I believe, man. That uh, disadvantage becomes an advantage uh, in, in a lot of instances, and it's a beautiful thing when it all comes together. And people are wondering, man, like how did this person at their size, or how did this person in these circumstances like overcome this? And it's like, man, those circumstances created a monster. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and like in the law school app process, they're looking at this test called the LSAT, which is kind of like mm -hmm. the MCAS for med school, and. Right. Someone could just have a bad day, but be exactly. a beast, like you said. So that, that's so true. Now you get to Georgia, um, true freshman. You're playing in games. You have mm -hmm. over 50 tackles, nine for loss, three sacks. Yeah. I'm assuming you're playing in front of a lot of people, and you're also very young. Right. How did you balance that? You know, emotional maturity, not mm -hmm. being kind of overwhelmed with who you are and also stepping up and going on the field and making big plays. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy. I was 18 years old, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> four years, I mean, four, like six months prior to that, I was in high school still, you know, like high school senior, <laughs> just yeah. wide eyed, you know, um, the course of that. And the, those numbers don't really tell the true story. Like all the accolades from that year don't tell the true story because I went about eight, nine weeks of not, of being on the sidelines, holding my helmet like not even thinking I was ever going to play there. But during those dark times, man, once again, it was like being in that place of of darkness and like adversity, just I used it, you know what I mean, to my advantage. And I would literally, you know, I would go in the weight room by myself, go in the film room by myself. I would line up 10 yards behind this, the person starting in front of me and I would mimic their every move. And, um, you know, I just did that for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I, I coined that phrase of what I did as operating at the level of your vision. So like for where I wanted to be, I operated as if I was already there. And wow. yeah, man. And when it came, when I got that nod, and that's been my whole career. I didn't, you know, high school is the same exact thing, waiting for an opportunity before it ever came, visualizing, uh, being in that position of success that I wanted to be in and waiting until the opportunity presented itself and being ready when it did present itself. In high school, yeah, it was, you know, in high school, it was a guy ahead of me that was a team captain and was the man. And 
about six weeks in, seven weeks in, he, he hurt his wrist and I was ready. Get to Georgia, it took eight, nine weeks. And, you know, same scenario. Like the guy ahead of me, he blew a play against Tennessee and I got the call and uh, went in and, and made plays immediately. The next week we played Florida and that's when they had Tim Tebow, Percy Harvin and, and like the whole crew just Yeah, they won out. multiple national championships, right? Yeah, this yeah. this year we ran on the field and and we beat them and everything. <clears throat> wow. But, yeah, it, it's just like all those moments added up, man, where I, I operate, like I said, operate at the level of my vision and, and was just ready to go. And when it came to balancing that success, man, I feel like those weeks leading up to the, that moment is what helped me so that when I did become a success, when my name did get mentioned in newspapers, I still had that humility. Like, I still had – you know, that mental fortitude to remember, like, where I once was, you know, it, it just created that, like I said, that that um, mindset to where I didn't get lost and caught up. I feel like if I had gotten there and immediately hit the field, then I probably wouldn't have been able to uh, manage the success, you know, and I would have gotten caught up. And you see that with so many people who, who rise too fast and they haven't yeah. been able to build the character to sustain it. So yeah. that's yeah. When I when I look back on those experiences, it was such a blessing. And, and so many people look, you know, that's the time where they throw in the towel. They're like, "Oh, forget this, man." You know, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna throw in the towel and not pursue this anymore. But if you can dig down deep, man, and build yourself during those times when nobody's acknowledging you, or whether it's like you're building a business and it looks like nothing's coming through, like when that breakthrough comes and you're ready, boy, it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah and yeah. there's a there's a quote that les brown said that i really like which is it's better to be prepared and not have an opportunity than to yeah. have the opportunity and, and not be prepared, prepared. yeah, yeah uh, that's, real. that's awesome man so you, you you crushed it freshman year waiting half the season yeah. and then you come out and you're playing well continue to play well you become captain at what point on this whole journey did the nfl enter the equation in your mind Oh man, um, it, it was a it was a very interesting journey because as I arose and as I went from this kid who had this dream of, of you know playing at University of Georgia and doing all these great things, one of the um, major things that happened for me was um, I had my high school sweetheart uh, who I was dating at that time. You know our relationship was kind of going back and forth, and so that was a whole other deal, like off the field managing, just being a collegiate athlete like in the, the fame and, and whatnot and the recognition and the women and all that stuff so um our relationship was going back and forth she ends up pregnant I have my daughter my sophomore year and so I became a father like <laughs> which meant I had to grow up overnight which meant you know I had to get money like <laughs> um and it got real on top of my family uh, struggling at this time like from basically seventh grade uh in middle school till I made it to the NFL, like my mom was paying all the bills. Like my, my dad had lost his business. Like we're struggling, man, like big time. And so I also get exposed to the business side of collegiate sports. So I started learning, man, this is like, not just, you know, funny games. Like this is a legit business. Like folks making out here making a million dollars, like the universities out here making tons of money every Saturday. Like my jersey at this time is hanging up in Walmart and big sporting goods. And I'm wondering like, dang. And you're not getting, getting paid off of that. Nah, I'm like, who's making all this money? Yeah. It's just uh, so many things. I had even one incident where I tried to start my own business and they shut me down. 
I got a call from a, a person in compliance who was like, you can't use your likeness. And I didn't even know what likeness was. You know, I'm 19 years old. So I'm like, yeah. likeness? Google, what is likeness? Is like <laughs> the use of your name. And I was like, I can't use my own name? Like, you freaking serious? And so um, that's when NFL became like really a legit option because I was like, man, I can't continue killing myself and like, you know, basically fueling this system that where I can't even leverage my own name or I can't even help my family. You know what I mean? I, I get that I get this uh, scholarship money and I get this housing or whatever, but ultimately if I get hurt tomorrow, like they're not going to help my child. They're not going to help, you know, me. It's just yeah. going to be on to the next. So I had to just um, do what was best for me, which was one of the toughest decisions of my life because I was a team captain because I, I did, you know, I loved my brothers, like playing for them and fighting for the man next to me. Um, but at the same time, it was just like, and they all understood, like we all in there ultimately to help our family. Like a lot of fans watch and they're like, oh, we love watching you play and then blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm like, this is not entertainment. Like this is our life. Like this is real. It's real life. When you take that jersey off and you go back home. Um, so that, that those are some of the things that drove me to, to make that decision to go to the NFL. Yeah. And so you left um, after your junior year of Georgia. Yep. To do that. And, and was there, and when you were talking to coach and like all the people on the team and your people who were helping you out, um, mm -hmm. what were you thinking was going to happen in terms of draft? Like where were you projected and what was that process like of waiting as the draft is going? Man. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the beauty of being at a position, like when you do uh, have a good career, they have like a NFL draft committee where you can basically uh, turn in kind of your resume, turn in your film, whatever it is. And they usually get back to you in like a month and let you know kind of where you will fall in the draft. So I told myself if I get a second or third round draft grade, that's probably as high as I'm going to go. Like my stock, because after my junior year, I led the SEC in tackles. And this was at, at the time with guys like Sean Witherspoon, uh, uh, who else was in there? Um, what's his name? Brandon. Um, Damn, what's Brandon's last name? He played at Florida. Great linebacker, Orlando McClain. I mean, there were some really, really uh, great linebackers in my class um, yeah. who were Orlando coming out. McClain, uh, yep, Sean Witherspoon. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Really, Darryl really Washington good. from uh, TCU. Exactly. Darryl Washington. Yeah, man. So it was like I put my numbers up against all of them, and I was like, I can shoot. Uh, I, I, I know I can be, you know, play better than them if given the right opportunity. And I knew coming back from my senior year, I wasn't going to be growing a couple of inches, <laughs> which yeah. was the only knock against me, like, was my size. like that, And that had always been my story. So I was just like, all right, I can come back and, you know, make more tackles and still hear that I'm undersized and still kind of be in the same position. Or I can just leave now and help my family, help my daughter. So left, you know, after um, talking to my coaches and talking to – um, my teammates and one thing that helped make it easier too after praying about it like I prayed about it on like a, a Saturday and on a sun like on a Friday and then a Sunday my whole defensive staff got fired so that was kind of like my yeah my sign that it was it's time to go and um just that whole process was crazy man like people don't understand just how much preparation goes into preparing to be an NFL athlete like just getting in, just getting your foot in the door, like what you got to go through, man. It's it's no joke. The combine, like every single day, just imagine waking up. I mean, from seven to you know four, like a nine to five. You're, but you're training 
like to become this elite, like top of the line athlete. So from the physical standpoint to the mental standpoint, getting up on the board, it's, it's the longest job interview ever. You know, most people have a, a three, four job interview or whatever session where, you know, you start out, fill out the application, you go meet them face to face, and then you have like two or three rounds, depending on how intense. Man, our jo- our job interview is like <laughs> it's like seven months long, man. Like, yeah, it's really like, your whole life in some ways. Yeah, I mean, you've been interviewing for this your whole life, man. People see the combine, but that's like one. That's like twenty percent of the experience. Because then after the combine, you got to go and you got to do the uh, um, team visits, and then after the team visits, you got to do the pro day, and after uh, pro day you have the draft and you get drafted, but that still don't guarantee that you're going to be on the team. So that's just, you know, you get in there, you still got to go through training camp and make that, you know, you got to go through OTAs and then you got to go through training camp, uh, which is another like a month and a half or whatever, killing yourself. And then by August, September, so you literally start from December and then not till August, September is when you finally know that you made the team. And you got to earn your keeps every year. Like, imagine, yeah. you know, imagine a job interview that's that long and then you get to the end of it. You get to August, the last preseason game, and they're just like, thanks, we, but uh, we're not going to keep you this year. So, wish you yeah. best. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen hard knocks where the Grim Reaper yeah, gives right. you a little tap. Coach wants to talk to you. Yep, that's it, man. No ifs and buts. You can't say, but, man, uh, but, I, you know, I can do this better. Like, I, nah, it's done. That's crazy. Like, so well, let's go. Good. Let's go back because, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you made it to the NFL. So let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. What was it like? So you were drafted in the third round of the NFL draft. Yeah. When they read your name, mm. what was that? Where were you? Who were you watching it with? And what was going right. through your body when they read your name on that screen? Oh man, it was the longest day of my life, man. It, it was like. I don't even know how to explain it, but I was at my parents' house and just sitting in their living room. And uh, the day before, because um, I got drafted on the second day. So the first day I knew, and I was more relaxed because I knew I wasn't going to get picked or anything. And saw, you know, saw some of my boys that got drafted. And I'm just like, oh, man, good for them. Awesome. At the end of the first day, I get a call from the coach. And I can talk about it now because I ain't playing anymore. But they called me and they were like, oh, man, Rennie. So, you know, we know you're still on the board. We really like you. We're going to try to get you in the second round. Uh, and second day comes up. So I'm just sitting in my parents' house, watching the TV screen, and you kind of see guys that are going. It's, and a lot of them you're happy for. And then some of them you're just like, what? Joe Smoke from Idaho, what? Like, yeah. you, <laughs> where'd you come from? <laughs> like, who are you? And you had a lot of those situations. And so um, my the pick – where the coach comes up in the second round and then I'm looking at the TV screen and then, uh, you know, Roger Goodell comes up and he announces and then he says with the 90 whatever pick with this, you know, 70 something pick of the second round, the Indianapolis coach select Pat, Pat Anger. Anger from yeah. Iowa. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> like, And they never hit me up and were like, hey man, you know, we're going to, but uh, some came up and we decided to go the other way or we felt like he had better speed or like nothing. They never hit me up anything. And I still to this day do not. It, it was like, that's so cold. Like, why would you, that's like telling a girl. <laughs> that guy was one inch taller than you. Right, yeah. It's not exactly. like he was 6'4 or anything. Right, right. 
So it's like you realize they're going they're going with the safe pick, you know? Yeah. Um, but it would be like telling somebody you're going to marry them and then like all of a sudden you just like walk through the another guy. ghosted by your fiance. <laughs> yeah, like, sorry. <laughs> but you don't say anything. You just like, you know. Um, and so sitting there after that, I was just like, my heart started being fat. I was like, man, I don't know when I'm going to get drafted. <laughs> and yeah. it, the day just gets longer and longer. Like I'm just watching TV screen for like six hours straight. And um, right when I'm about to throw throw the towel in for the night and go to sleep, I'm sitting with the whole family and my phone starts ringing and it's a 615 number. I pick up the phone and it was Jeff Fisher. And he was like, man. Uh, Head coach of the Titans. Yeah, man. He's like, I know you've been waiting for a long time, but it's Jeff Fisher with the Tennessee Titans. Want to welcome you on board. So he called you before they announced it. Yeah, he called me right before, man. And uh, wow. then he passed it to uh, to the defensive coordinator. Then the defensive coordinator passed it to the the GM, and the GM passed it to you know. It just went around, man. It, it was awesome. Man. I just like my whole life flashed before my eyes. Like all, all those times I heard no, and all the times I heard I was too short. You know, all the people who helped me, man. And then you know, mom and sisters all crying, and yeah, it was yeah, it was powerful, man. That's amazing. I mean, that's like. These, now you're talking about, I mean, we're, you're living in Georgia. You see the Georgia games on TV. But, I mean, right. a guy like Jeff Fisher giving you a call, that's like national TV. Right. That's like, all right, you're famous, not just in Georgia, but, like, you're famous, famous. So how do you yeah. stay humble in that moment and, like, oh, celebrate what you deserve, but also be like, okay, I'm going to be, like, wearing Tennessee Titan gear. Like, I got to be cool right. about this. And another crazy thing that happened, man, is like right after I got off the phone with them, um, or not too long after, uh, Roger Goodell gets up to the podium and announces my name. My name flashes on the screen, and I look down at my phone, and like it literally looked like my phone hit the jackpot. Like it was like three hundred text messages just instantly came in. Yeah. And like I've never seen since that moment, I've never seen my phone explode like that. Um, my voicemail, my voicemail box went from like empty to like automatically full <laughs> in like two seconds. <laughs> Man, well, you were the first, that was, you were the first person from Georgia to be selected in that draft. Yeah. Yeah. I was the first person from Georgia, man. So when it came to like maintaining that humility, man, it's like, that was my DNA. Like that's who I was, you know, and that's something that said a lot. It's like success, massive success will just only bring out more of who you are. And so in that position, like, I understood, like, it wasn't just about me. Like, I wasn't the only one that won in that moment. I wasn't the only one drafted. Like, all my teachers who helped me, they were drafted, too. They won, too. My coaches won, too. My pastors, you know, everybody from my community won on that night. So it, it was powerful, man. Everybody from, like, Liberia, because there's not that many of us. Yeah. So, like, they were celebrating. So it, it was, man, it was big. It was big, and, and that was part of why I remained humble because I knew it was, like, so many people who helped me get to that moment. Yeah, that's uh, amazing. And, you know, one thing I want to ask you about, too, is uh, you mentioned having faith and, and church a little bit. And yeah. something because, you know, I, I'm a coach and, and I speak, and so personal development is near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. And not always, but you do see a good amount of, like, really healthy church and religion like promoting similar messages and so mm-hmm. I, I love that and 
I'm curious the role that um, religion played in your life in terms of, you also mentioned praying um, as you wrote yeah. this process and how it's helped you and how you connect that to now because really going around speaking a lot about self-improvement and these types of topics. Oh yeah, man. I mean, it, it was everything. I, I really came from a faith-filled family and one of the biggest things it provided me with was guardrails. Like, um, anytime, because I, as I'm sure you did, you had those opportunities to go astray, whether it's drugs, whether it's women, uh, and I made tons of mistakes, you know, got in, in trouble at times, but I always knew that my faith would be my anchor. It always brought me back to my center. It was my North Star. And no matter how bad things got, I always knew, like, I would overcome. Like, it just gave me this perspective that, you know, I was never in a situation that I could not surpass or like that was too big, you know, and that, that started from my faith and my belief in God that he had, that he was on my side, that I was going to be good no matter what came my way, no matter what person said, what about me, that if he was for me, I'll be, I'll be good. And no matter what I was going against, if it was six, eight office and linemen, like I was going to, like I had everything that I needed, that I had the strength, that I had the quickness, that I was provided with the right tools to succeed so it really just gave me like i said the guardrails and it gave me perspective um which which is powerful man as you as you're going on because i had those times like i said like when i found out <laughs> my my daughter's mother was pregnant and <laughs> all that like i could have easily just been like man i'm about to just drop out whatever but same thing it was that situation where i reminded myself i'm good i've been in tough situations you know, that the Lord has brought me out of. So it, it really got, got in me in my career. And I had a lot of people praying for me as well, like, which gave me that confidence. Like my mom was the type where I'm sleeping and she bringing the holy oil and she, <laughs> she rubbing, it, <laughs> rubbing it on my forehead and like praying for me while I sleep. And like, that's the type of people I come from. Um, very, very um, faithful people. So it just like really, really helped me when I faced those, those tough times. That's awesome. And talk a little bit about um, what you do now. And we'll, we'll drop more information in the show notes for listeners to see more about your career playing the NFL and in Canada. But yeah. uh, in the interest of time, let's just share a little bit more about um, what you do now, how you transition to entrepreneur and kind of what your core yeah. messages are. Definitely, man. So uh, really, after that first year being drafted, everything was great. Awesome. And then I ended up getting cut. and. Um, that was after my second year with the Titans and the lockout happened. Jeff Fisher gets fired. All of a sudden new staff comes in, new draft picks. And like most companies I get acquired or, you know, a merger or whatever, yeah, uh, you end up losing a lot of times your value. Or it's just a different business model now. So you're not needed. So I ended up back home and that's why I really started to just uh, uncover my identity and who I was and, and started to do a self inventory of my skill sets and, met with a lot of business professionals and just started getting out of the world of just football, out of this football bubble and started reading a lot of books, something that I had never really done. Got into a lot of uh, self-help and personal development and faith, you know, books. I just devoured them, man, like, because I had that time. And um, from there, after reading lots of different books uh, and after meeting a lot of different people and starting to journal and all those things reflect on my life, I realized that so many people would be in this place in life, and whether that's losing their job or going through divorce or losing their business like my father did. And I was, you know, got the, the urge to write a book. And I was like, I can really help 
a lot of people in this situation that I'm in. So it's a lot about compassion, man, that got me started into what I, I'm doing now. And once I finished, uh, wrote the book, I realized it wasn't going to sell itself. And <laughs> that's what got me on the path of like, you know, building my own website, personal branding, understanding how to leverage my past experiences, my skill sets and creating the product. Yeah. Um, and creating value for others. So uh, from there, I just continue speaking. I, I can uh, started, there getting into doing workshops and then uh, that led me to doing what i do now which is the personal development coaching and um crap hello yep good all right i thought i lost you for a second I was like, Man. <laughs> um but yeah so i i ended up playing for tampa uh, playing in canada after that but it became one foot in football one foot out entrepreneur being a speaker uh, being an author and, and doing the personal development stuff. So, yeah, that's what I, I do now. Um, speaker often, and I'm um, the CEO of Game Changer Coaching. And our whole mission, uh, as you said before, is to help uh, business professionals, athletes, and uh, business and in, in, in life in performance. So I've been able to help <clears throat> countless individuals, whether they're athletes who are transitioning or, or business professionals, um, with everything from their, their leadership and their performance ability to, you know, if it's that person who's working a nine to five and like me, all of a sudden is out of a job or is thinking about going into entrepreneurship, you know, how do you take those skill sets that you built and uh, monetize them? You know, and, and that's something that I really have been, that I really uh, find a lot of joy in, man. So I've just been continuing to build it. And that's, um, yeah. That's great, just, man. You know, I was just going to ask you, so you have, Tremendous discipline and work ethic. Mm -hmm. And you also have quite the resume with your football and NFL stuff. There are a lot of listeners out there who are hungry and they want to do something similar to what you're doing, build a coaching business or some kind of business of their own. And they might say, oh, well, you know, Brendan, you had Wall Street. Randy, you had NFL. Give to someone who's like, you know, if they put in the time and they're hungry enough, they can make this happen. But maybe they're doubting themselves because they don't think they have that right branding that you or I have. Right. And I, I will say, man, start small, start with you, what you have, you know, leverage every single thing that you have that requires no investment. If, if people really take the time to sit down and do a self-evaluation um, and then do their numbers, like as an entrepreneur, as I'm sure, you know, you have to break down your numbers. Like as far as uh, what number, what quality of life do I want to live at? Uh, what, what do I need to generate per month based off the, skill sets that I have based off the value that I can drive, like what's the market rate for the value or for the skill sets that I have, whether that's in financial services, whether you're a doctor, whatever it is, um, taking that time to evaluate themselves. Um, take, you have to be willing to take the leap of faith. And I feel like so many people these day in this day and age, especially with social media, get caught up in the numbers, get caught up in the glisten and glam yeah. um, of, of doing what they do. And for me, I was like, if I only sell one book and only one person is inspired, then so be it. You know, but at the end of the day, I'm going to live my truth. And I feel like once people can accept that and not be caught up in saying, hey, you know, I got to be at this level. I got to have, you know, the, the big following. I got to be on TV. Then they'll, they'll be fine. Like, no, you know, I'm sure you know this and, and um, you probably say the same thing, but no uh, person who's a notable name just woke up and just built that thing overnight and it was a success yeah. which is um you know 
one of the things that's so deceiving about social media because you see these guys like Gary Vaynerchuk and Eric Thomas and all that, and even Les Brown. It's like it, it kind of takes away from the fact that they've been doing this for years. Decades. Well, yeah, for decades, yeah. man. They've yeah. been building. They've already done. You know, by the time social media, of course, came out, they were already kind of seasoned. They'd already done their yeah. 10 years or their 10,000 hours. But I guarantee you, if social media was around in the 80s, you would have seen them in your high school or, you know, in their local community church, you know, speaking and, and not getting paid for it and putting in the, paying their dues. Yeah. And so I think if, if people can buy into that, uh, being faithful with you and just, um, you know, having that grind mentality, that immigrant mindset, <laughs> they'll, they'll be good. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny. Uh, when I, I used to work at a hedge fund and uh, our founder, he loved like hungry, uh, humble people. And I was talking to him and I was like, all right, who are we going to hire? Cause we need a new spot for a new guy. And he's like, I want someone poor. I want, mm. so I want an immigrant. And we got, this, we got this guy from Russia who was sleeping on his floor cause his mattress didn't come yet. Uh, no air conditioning in the summer in New York city. <laughs> yeah, it's real. And uh, so, yeah, I respect that a lot. And, uh, this yeah. has been really fun and, and enlightening. I've learned a lot from this. I'm really grateful for your time. Just so listeners, I'm sure they're going to want to follow up with you and check you out online and learn more about your stuff. Where can everyone find you? Yeah, so uh, first place is my website, rennycurran.com, and it's R-E-N-N-I-E-C-U-R-R-A-N.com. And then I'm active on all social media platforms, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, I uh, have a, a podcast as well, so you're going to have to get on that man, so I can learn about your story. And it's called the Game Changer Podcast. So those are some of the ways that you can find me. And I do respond if anybody reaches out. If I can ever help any of your listeners, I'm always here. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much, man.